This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest here was born in Somaliland, but moved to the UK as a child fleeing civil war. She grew up in Cardiff, but on a trip at the age of seven was subjected to female genital mutilation, a moment in her life that led her to become one of the world's leading anti-FGM activists today. She went on to set up Daughters of Eve, a survivor-led organisation that has helped transform approaches to ending FGM, as well as the Five Foundation, a global coalition for the same cause. My guest now travels the world to lobby the governments to clamp down on these practices. She is also no stranger to British politics and was appointed by Priti Patel in 2020 as an independent advisor in the Home Office on the Violence Against Women and Girls strategy, a role she recently left. In 2019, she published her first book, what we are told not to talk about, containing 42 stories from 152 interviews and was awarded an OBE for her groundbreaking activism. My guest today is Nimco Ali. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. On this podcast, we always begin with saying, was yours a happy childhood? But having just read out that introduction, yeah. how would you describe yours? Well, do you know what? It was a happy childhood that was interrupted, obviously, by both civil war and FGM. And I think that's the kind of basis of my activism because I think... My, I always say that, that my FGM happened out of context in the sense that I didn't necessarily have all the kind of gender-specific kind of chastisation or kind of like upbringing outside of the FGM. And Met and I had this space in order to be able to question it. So I think until the age of seven, it was a happy childhood. And it's something that I'm immensely grateful for. And I was actually thinking about it today, that the way I've been able to kind of sl- slip into certain parts of society is that I was immensely privileged when I was growing up. I lost everything in in the civil war and cancer. I lived in kind of like, you know, poverty growing up in my early teens and well, I'm the young age. But because I came from such a privileged background, I've never really saw myself as poor. So yeah, in a roundabout way, I, I did have a lovely childhood and I had a family and grandparents that I really loved. And you mentioned the civil war that you fled. Do you have many memories of Somaliland before you came here? I do. And it was really, so we used to go back once or twice a year since I was like born. So I remember Somaliland very well and I remember my grandparents house very well and it was a really amazing time I remember the war very vividly as well and it's something which it's really interesting being that little bit British and that little bit African in in the sense that I was six at the time and I ended up turning seven as, as we were trying to get away but having come from Manchester where there weren't bombs falling out from the sky when Hedgesa which is the capital of of Somaliland was being hit. I remember like crying and saying, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And everybody really found that really funny because they're like, oh my God, you're so obsessed with your life. I'm thinking, I'm six. Like, it's okay to actually fear dying. So it's something that still to this day kind of I find interesting is that how death is so accepted on the African continent. And obviously here, it's something that we try to avoid and something that we never even talk about. So grief it's just very close to happiness, weirdly enough. So that was, I think that's for me, it was the kind of culture of dealing with it afterwards that was really interesting. And when you came here, did you, obviously you would have left some family and friends behind. So was it strange staying in touch with obviously such different journeys from there on? So we obviously, my grandparents and everybody else had to go into a refugee camp in Ethiopia and the other parts of the family, parts of my family have been spread across the world now. So the diaspora, of the Somaliland community is is kind of massive and I remember when we used to go back 
to, or when we used to go to my grandparents' house, like a lot older, or even if you go to downtown Samoa now, the number of languages that are being spoken is actually really interesting because you have, I have first cousins that are Swedish, first cousins that are German. So it was really difficult to kind of not be able to see your grandparents like I normally used to. But what was also interesting was the fact that because Somali was more of an oral language than a written one, my mother was the first generation to be educated in Somali. The way that people used to keep in contact wasn't through letters, but it was through tape recordings. So you would like, you know, record a tape and then send it over and then they would record a tape for you and then bring it back. So it was a, a really interesting way. You even did that with like family members that were in America or other parts of Europe. You wouldn't, you wouldn't write letters, but you would go and basically send a tape recording to them. And then you get to the UK. Yeah, so we came back to Manchester, yeah. I'd lived in Manchester, so I was so happy to be back. It was just like, I always say that because I came back in September and I always, like, you know, love autumn and that kind of, I was so happy to be back. I'd never been happier to basically be out of Africa. And that's a weird thing that I didn't go back to Africa again until 2016. And I went to, no, 2014, actually. I went to Burkina Faso and then I went to Somaliland in 2016. I was literally, I w- well, it wasn't technically fuck Africa, but it was just like, I'm never going back to that place again because I had not only had I just experienced civil war, but also FGM as well, which I had no kind of context to, but I just knew it was painful. But what was really interesting was the fact that I had the same year three teacher. I'd gone back to school and we had the same teacher and she'd seen the news in terms of what happened in the horn. And she was like, are you okay? I'm so glad you're like, you know, you're back. How are you? Um, How was it? And then I just literally started talking about the FGM as opposed to the war, because I'm thinking, how can you say there were people like, you know, bombing, there was like bombs going off, it didn't really make that much sense. But the thing that I really wanted to make sense about was my FGM. So yeah, I was very, very happy to be back in Manchester. You mentioned the FGM incident. I suppose just for listeners, if you could just roughly explain, so, so you were living in the UK, but then you go on a trip yeah. and you don't know what exactly has happened. No, so basically what happened was that the war had broken out by the time that we were there and my grandfather, God rest his soul, was one of the founding members of Somaliland. So he ended up being arrested while we were in town and then basically the dictator of Somalia ended up having a massive clampdown on the capital of Somaliland, Hergesa, in order to try to just like, you know, get these dissidents to stop like, you know, uprising. And they weren't even armed, there was more of like, you know, a revolution that you would see in Iran today and all those other kind of things where it was a bit like the Arab Spring, but in the Horn of Africa. So what happened was, so, so my grandfather was arrested and we thought he was like executed because that was the plan that was going to happen. So then we had to leave from Hergesa to Djibouti, which is a neighbouring East, East African country. And when we got there, it was um, then decided that we were going to have FGM. I don't think had the war not broken out that we would have had it because we were so young. I was like, you know, seven, just turned seven actually. And my sister was a lot younger than I was. So I think had that not happened I think we would have still lived in like you know just come back and forth in the UK to Somaliland and my mother would have thought that our culture could be educated through being like you know having that concrete foundation at home so yeah it happened and it's really weird because I knew they were having a conversation about something so I was helping them to plan with my granny and I was just walking around and I was just because it was a little bit of normality outside of just like almost two and a half weeks three weeks of trekking from one country to another 
in the back of trucks and all these things and then now to be in Djibouti with other parts of my family and just like it was really nice actually so I was just walking around thinking that, that we were packing up to go back to Manchester because we would always go shopping and bring like you know bring back herbs or like you know spices or things that you know that, that you couldn't actually at the time you couldn't get any of these things that you can get in Asda's at the moment so yeah so it's kind of like just getting that and then I remember when the day came and my grandmother went to the door and my mother went to the door and I was quite tiny so I was behind my granny and I saw this woman and I was just kind of completely freaked out and I thought oh my god like I don't really like the look of her um so yeah so I do remember a lot of it and it's kind of interesting how that kind of seeps into your adulthood because one of the things that she said because I I talk about running away from the cutter herself and her scolding me and calling me a brat when I came back, she's like, you know how hard it is to find anesthesia because because I had a local anesthetic in terms of the FGM that I was gonna like with the procedure. And to, to this day, when I, I do have high standards for things, and especially when I'm going out on dates, when anybody ever calls me a brat, it really pisses me off. Because I'm thinking, no, no, I'm not like, so is this kind of triggering yeah. thing when anybody ever says, oh, stop being a brat? But yeah, I, I remember very vividly, and it's something that I didn't really speak to my sister or my mum about for a long time, because I thought they remembered as well, but obviously not, not, not as much as I did. And you start speaking to others about that experience. Is it a slow process, kind of? And because you go, obviously go on to have daughters or to co-found daughters yeah. of Eve. Yeah. Um, so do you meet other survivors? Is it a longer process of starting to kind of realise what's happened? Or No, I, I was... Yeah. So this is what I mean about the out-of-context experience yeah. that I had. So when I had the FGM, then everybody in my family stopped talking about it. And then we ended up moving to Cardiff when I was nine. And I remember, because they were very open about the conversation. So I remember my mum and other women that were sitting around. And I think I have to make it clear that my mum was only 20, so were 20 when she had me. So by the time I was nine, she's only 29. So I remember my mum talking to her friends. And then all of a sudden, because there was such an, a massive influx of Somali communities, especially from Somaliland into the UK, they, um, everybody was really concerned about their Somali daughters that were growing up here because we were completely seen as like being born here we were called fish and chips so we were like the diaspora children so therefore are not as Somali as the girls that had gone back like you know had been born back in Somaliland so I remember a lot of the mothers talking about oh we need to get our daughters cut because they, they've all lived here all their lives and we never done it and my mother was very happy about saying oh well I had them cut before we came and t now it sounds really weird that you'd be like really proud of this whole thing but then for me what was even weirder was that a lot of the girls that I grew up in Cardiff who were like 15, 16 were being like taken to Dubai or Manchester or Birmingham where places where these Sudanese doctors were doing it and I was just thinking but guys you're like growing up like I was I was a child I couldn't object to it and that happened for a long time in my primary school and my senior school that a lot of my Somali friends would be going to get FGM and I would be always the one going like why but you know this is illegal and you can't do I knew it was wrong it was one of those things where and I was always very kind of shocked that my friends would go along with it but then I understand that they didn't necessarily have the same kind of family upbringing that I did I, they didn't have the kind of parents that allowed you to be able to speak back and do all these other kind of things so I think I was I was very much raised in a family where 
my outspokenness and my kind of like sometimes you can say assholeness was accepted and I was allowed to be I was allowed to be this concept of what other people might have thought was a brat so I didn't ever think that it was something that was okay and it wasn't also something that was hidden it was something that was very kind of normal and I used to talk about it I used to talk about it a lot to my friends and then I remember around 13 14 I just thought okay I think these people are on a different planet to me because they seem to think that I'm the problem and that they're not the problem and then my like you know non friends who weren't having FGM were all um, kind of like I couldn't talk to them because they're thinking oh my god it's this thing that happens to barbaric people and I'm like no it happens to like me like the girl that's talking to you so I think growing up in Cardiff was really interesting because I had there was FGM within the Somali and the Yemeni community and then there was like forced and child marriage within the Pakistani and the Bangladeshi community and nobody did anything and most of those girls that I grew up with now seeing seeing them on Facebook it's really really interesting and I realize how different my kind of privileged upbringing in terms of to have some kind of feminist voice was to theirs and I and I feel bad about it but I was just a child that was just really thinking like guys like what the fuck like what are you why are you really like you know accepting this I would have I would have literally set up the adults of Eve or done anything to have these conversations at a young age but I just didn't have the political or the kind of the support that I needed and then I just stopped talking about it because I thought you know what this is going to change I ended up not necessarily mixing with as many Somalis as I used to and that wasn't necessarily because I like I wasn't proud of my identity and I'm incredibly proud of my identity and my culture but I just couldn't have these conversations that nobody wanted to really have and you went on to study law at Bristol yes I did and why did you want to do law was it already a bit of a sense of from some of your comments earlier almost like knowing your rights yeah it was and also I think I became weirdly to to say weirdly I became very political having seen my grandfather fight for his freedom and his country and that's something that I'm like you know I'm massively democratic I believe in the democratic system I believe like you know that democracy is not perfect but it is the best thing that we have so I wanted to be able to not just know my my rights but also to be able to defend people and it was really interesting someone I met somebody the other day for the first time and they said oh my god Nimco you're so controversial and I was like how how am I controversial? I'm a very kind of like, you know, I'm a pro-choice, anti-death penalty, pro-tax, left-leaning lawyer. Like if, I, if I had gone in the tangent that I wanted to go in, I would have been a human rights lawyer. So I think having seen people be arrested and then also not being able to have a voice as a child, I thought law was the only place to kind of do that. So after you finish your degree, what are you thinking about career-wise? So basically, I'd fallen, I'd, I'd met my first boyfriend. So okay, obviously, so that, like, you know, boys do change your trajectory. And I remember, I was like, we have to get married. And he was this Somali guy. And it was this whole thing of like, oh, well, then I can't go to law school because that's going to take ages. And obviously, I was in my mind, I was trying to still fit into this Somali perfect woman. Yeah. But also at the same time, I was completely different. So I thought, oh my God, if I marry a Somali guy, if I do things the right way, then I can like not be seen as a complete like outsider. So I ended up going into the fast stream, and that was like you know that was a lot easier because then I was still I would get paid straight away, and we were going to get a mortgage, we were going to get a house. And ironically, I was going to move back to Manchester because that's where he was from. So it was really interesting going back to Manchester for the first time and trying to look at houses and seeing like, where we can live and all these things. And then I remember like you know breaking up with him because I just thought, God, I can't do this to myself. It's not. I literally, it's not going to make me happy and I keep telling people that and they're like how did you what do you mean I was like he was eating pizza and I looked at him and I thought could this be the rest of my life no 
and I left. <laughs> I said, I left. And then I came back to Bristol and I ended up buying a house in Bristol and just like, just living there, just thinking this is what I'm gonna do. And then I came to London for my rotation and I thought, God, as much as I like civil service, it's not really what I wanted to do. So let me start volunteering. So I started to volunteer around FGM, like, you know, cause I wanted to do some stuff with FGM. And I remember this young girl in London, she was with an organization and she had just come back after being sectioned under the Mental Health Act for having like you know, a really like intense breakdown. And it was all because she'd been rejected by her Somali boyfriend or future husband because she had the same invasive form of FGM that I did. And I remember I used to take her, because I was working in counter-terrorism at the time, I always used to take her to the Costas in Edgware Road. And we'd sit there and I'd always talk about FGM in the third person. I'm like, it's okay, it's fine. And then she sent me a message saying, I'm gonna do an event in East London, would you come? And then I had my first date in a long time and it was with a white guy, because I was like, you know what, I'm gonna go in there. And I remember like she was late, so we got there and she was late and then somebody said, well, where is she? And I said, first of all, why are you asking me? Because you're the meant to be having a duty of care to her. And then she came and then she came, they basically, before she even took her coat off, they put her on the stage to kind of talk about her experience of FGM. And she was just like hyperventilating. And I just thought, my silence is so complicit to her suffering because she has no idea that there's another person in this room who had the same experience as she did. And it's not the end of the world to have FGM. There, There is life beyond FGM. And I don't know why, but I just stood up, like I got up and I just took her off and she was still on the microphone. And I said, listen, I swear to you, it's gonna be fine. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. I had the exact same FGM as you did. And she was like, will I be able to have sexual pleasure? And I said, it's about intimacy. It's nothing to do with a physical act that happened to you. And her microphone was transmitting at the time. And I still remember this guy going, I was like, oh God, I've got to... So then I had to go and take him and kind of exp explain to him, like, you know, it's fine, I'm not broken, all these things. And it was at that moment when the cat was out of the bag, I thought, okay, for me just... And did he cope with it well? He did, but again, it was like, if you think about it now, it was me trying to make him feel better rather yeah, than totally. him trying to ask me if I'm okay. You're and doing the reassuring. Exactly, and for, for a long time, I did that. I always put everybody else's feelings and like, even when I talked about my experience of FGM, I would like try to get people not to feel sorry for me. And it's like, you you basically just like overdid the whole kind of like, I'm okay, I'm okay, which I was physically okay, but I don't think I was psychologically okay because I hadn't spoke about it before in such a kind of open way. So then at what point do you set up this group? It's quite soon after that. Yeah, it's quite soon. Kind of, you're talking about your experience and then you start to think. Yeah, yeah. and like we need to do something. And it also actually came, it came about as like, you know, there were two things that came about. So I remember I was still working in civil service and um, at this time the coalition government had come in. So it was about 2012 around that time. And there was a meeting and then FGM kept on coming up at the home office and these kinds like they kept on mixing it with counter-terrorism and all these things from these communities. And then they said, I was in Brent at the time and Theresa May was coming to visit and Lynn Featherstone and then I said oh so as they were sitting around in this group I said oh there's this amazing organization called Daughters of Eve have you spoken to them and they're like yeah yeah they're brilliant I'm like they don't exist because I just like you know just set it up because I was in this room of people talking about FGM with like zero experience and then consistently just making things up and I realized they're talking about girls like me and at women that could be me but they're not engaging with us so I thought okay fine we're gonna set that up. But I never really wanted me to be associated with FGM. That's why I thought I'm gonna put my code name as Nimka with a K. God, that was, the, that's the, that was the dumbest undercover. It was like a Superman putting his glasses on. 
kind of thing. I thought nobody's gonna realize who I am. It's gonna be so different. And Twitter was actually quite great for that. And then Lynn Featherstone, it was really interesting, had gone from the home office and then gone to Diffid. And then she went off to somewhere in Africa and was sitting under a tree with these like men and like, you know, FGM performers. And I tweeted and I said, oh, would you sit around a coffee table with paedophiles to talk about paedophilia? And she replied, what's your experience of FGM? And have you been to Africa recently? And I said, well, my experience of FGM is a daily thing and don't try to out-Africa me. And then that was kind of like how her and I became friends. And then that's basically how the conversation really started and the activism. So it's around 2011, 2012. And then I suppose the other aspect, which is when, when your name's often been in the media, it's often also been to do with like, links with the Conservative Party yeah. as, as well. So as you start to build a profile, obviously a lot of that is down to the charity, but it was also the case when you stood for the Women's Equality Party. Yes. I don't know, would, would you consider yourself a Conservative? I wonder where, because some of the things you've said have been obviously criticising Labour, particularly when it comes to... Cultural relativism and yeah, stuff, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it can be read as being supportive of the Conservatives, but would you go to, so far as say you are Conservative? No, I think I'm, I'm honestly, I keep saying that I'm a Blairite, so I, yeah. I kind of, I'm from the centre in that kind of political ideology. Like, I came from a country where tribalism actually tore it apart, so I'm very allergic to this idea of tribalism, and I think that was what that 2019, and even the 2017 election, kind of was about so when I stood for the women's equality party I was standing on five principles that I agreed with but everybody was like are you are you labor or are you conservative I'm like well I'm I'm a feminist like you know and the reality is that the conservative party have been in power since like you know since I've been campaigning and for me I always work with like you know I always say yeah. this is this is my kind of theory on politics like you know I'm not going to vote for you and I'm not going to date you but I will work with you so every time I meet a new MP that's that's how I kind of work no with it no date well no well, unless they were like really nice but then most of the people I work with are not that nice like I had to work with Mike Pompeo so we ended up getting it was the weirdest thing he called me a magnificent creature and I was like I'm not sure if that's sleazy or just like it was I think I think it might have been a me too moment but it was just bizarre so then I started speaking to him about Sudan and how they needed to pass FGM and then we did that so the whole point is like I would never in my life ever endorse Mike Pompeo but then also at the same time I can say that the UN tried for 40 years to ban FGM and within six months the Five Foundation did it because we worked with Mike Pompeo. So in a roundabout way, my politics is very like fluid. I, obviously, I would never, I would never vote for UKIP or anything else like that. I mean, even like, I don't think I'd, I'd even vote for Lib Dems to be fair. But you never know. How are you thinking about voting for the next election? Well, my local MP is Keir Starmer, so I always vote for the best local MP. I don't know who the Conservative yeah. standing there is. So okay, yeah, so yeah, what that's what share. Um, <laughs> they need to up their game. To exactly. Vote. Yeah. Exactly. Get a good. Yeah. Get somebody as um, good as Keir Starmer. You mentioned the Tories being in power, and as someone who's read lots of your pieces, particularly in your campaigning, there's another reason your name has come up quite a lot in recent years. Yeah. Which is obviously Boris Johnson's been Prime Minister, and you are close friends with his wife Carrie Johnson, yeah. and often I think when it's been you know the court of Boris type pieces. Yeah, you have the, cover the, the cover of the spectator. <laughs> I just wonder what's it like when obviously you have your own you have your own thing. Yeah. you're actually making loads of change, but then all of a sudden you keep just being referred to as Carrie's friend in the media. Did it get a bit frustrating? It was. Do you know what? It was like at first, like I am her friend, but the whole thing it is kind of like offensive as well because I've worked with Theresa May, I've worked with Gordon Brown. I know I worked with, but in terms of the Conservative Party, I worked with David Cameron. I've worked with Theresa May. Didn't really work with Liz because she didn't like it. She didn't last that long uh, which yeah. was actually quite she was actually quite disappointed both as a foreign secretary and as a as a prime minister in terms of women and girls which was kind of sad so it was kind of 
started to be reduced down to just my friendship and as though my political kind of activism or, or relevance was like something that became like you know that happened overnight like you know yeah. I've been lobbying people for ages I mean for example one of the most kind of successful things that we did was I actually got a call from the chief whip and um, when Theresa May was prime minister and Christopher Choves was objecting uh, no 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 not certain object to adding FGM to the Children's Act and I remember calling him and because can you imagine and this is what I mean the whole point is like the Conservative Party's whip is calling me saying if maybe if you speak to him like something can like you know actually happen I was given his number I text him and like you know the next day I was actually that's when James O'Brien didn't like you know think of me as some kind of right winger I was on the James O'Brien show like really crying and I was kind of broken because I was thinking this is about protecting children and then Theresa May ended up giving us time within the parliament to make that, to have that pass. And that, and that was like way before Boris was prime minister and all those other kind of things. So yeah, I do think it kind of like strips away from the like almost decade I put into the work that I do. And it was especially around the time when Priti asked me to be her, to be her, her advisor. Yeah, to be her advisor. I think a lot of those articles were disingenuous and kind of, and really, yeah, yeah really offensive. So yeah, it was a really hard, like, you know, two or three years for me in terms of, trying to be able to tell people because at the same time it's not a lie that I'm friends with somebody and I don't want to hurt my friends feelings but then at the same time I'm also doing a job that is about the rights and the lives of like the most vulnerable people on the planet yeah and that comes first definitely you have spoken um I think in praise of Rishi Sunak too yeah obviously Boris Johnson's not immediate successor. We did have, you said, the Liz yeah. Truss era, the one after. When we're speaking, while well, there's all, like, I think, partly because it's January, there's lots of bring back Boris. Yeah. Do, do you think Rishi Sunak's the right person for now? Or? No, yeah. 100%. Yeah. I think he is, and I think there's a, I think there's like a kind of an ease within the silent majority, especially millennials, that like you know, it is somebody that is going to focus on the job, and there's not other things that are kind of carrying around. Obviously, I supported Boris, and I was elated when he won the 2019. Um, election but I think being a prime minister is something that you get a shot at I don't think it's this thing where you can kind of like you know be voted back as though it's like x factor or whatever it is so yeah no I actually do think Rishi is doing well but I also hope and that's one of the reasons why I stepped down from my role at the home office is that I think the party needs to start moving back to the center I think it's easier for the conservatives to do that than it is for Labour to kind of leave their hard left kind of conversations behind and a lot like a majority of undecided voters which are the people that like you know that the Conservative Party need to be going towards like Rishi and I think I think he's doing a fair job I do you know what it's like I don't want to say it because a lot of my friends and I have these conversations but like a lot of the things towards him there is like you know a level of racism and nobody wants to kind of say that I mean this I mean a man whose parents have worked for the NHS who knows the NHS in and out nobody asked nobody other prime minister was asked about their kind of healthcare providers and all these other kind of things so I think there's a lot of disingenuous kind of attacks on him that come from people who just can't deal with him being a brown self-made person being a prime minister. You mentioned your role, which you now stepped down from, which was a pretty Patel appointment. I mean, it's interesting that you're saying, you know, that actually there's quite a lot you like from Rishi Sunak. Yeah. Now is not the time for Boris' return. It's not Rishi Sunak. But in which case, is it something about the direction under him 
in terms of his his home secretary, Sarah yeah. Braverman, that led you to go, or has it been a kind of longer term? No, do you know what? I think we achieved a lot of the things that we needed to achieve. So in terms of like getting the virginity testing banned and like, you know, changing child marriage and like getting all these other kind of things done. I, I wouldn't necessarily call, like, you know, Suella was home secretary, both under Liz Truss and, and Rishi Sunak. So I don't necessarily think it's his kind of um, home secretary, but I think it is it is things like her politics that kind of like really make it hard for me to be able to kind of because uh, I don't have I don't need to stay in that role now that we've done all the things that we needed to do anyway had she come in halfway through and there were still things to do I think I would have sucked it up and just like you know got things done like I did with other people who were basically in roles that I didn't necessarily um, agree with but I think now I've got the ability to be able to be like a critical friend is what I mean and I think the prime minister has incredibly talented people that are in his government that could probably make better home secretaries and there are just a few final questions you stood for a seat in the 2017 general election <laughs> you've also through your campaigning right and also through obviously your, your friendship with someone who was in number 10 seen politics pretty firsthand yeah. uh, since then too would you would you try again to be an mp do you know, no, because I think, what is it? You don't, again, like I said, I believe in democracy, but nothing makes you question democracy then until you meet the average voter and you're thinking like, what the fuck? It's like, honestly, sometimes I'm just thinking like, so my um, standard in 2017, I equate it, again, I keep going back to dating. I equate it to like asking for a second date to someone who doesn't want to see you again. So you're knocking on the door and it was just like really weird. And then you're giving them a, a picture of yourself. And it's just really sad to say, but I don't think like, you know, if I, if I, if I was going to stand, I'd have to like, I would be really committed to it, but I don't think I would survive. Like, I mean, physically, and I've lived under the fear of death when I was, when I first started doing the FGM work. And it's quite nice to be able to walk down the street and not be like spat out or kind of or people think that you're kind of um, public yeah public property to be able yeah. to because it was really interesting about three or four months ago um, I was actually it was last January it was like a year ago almost so Pretty had, had, had taken me out for my birthday kind of like a birthday dinner because my birthday is shitty December and we were in several house and then this kind of group sat next to us and. And this is what I mean about being a politician. And then this woman came over, this white woman, and she just basically was like, sat down and said, I'm not going to miss my opportunity to say what I need to say to Pretty. And I thought, okay, fine, I will be polite and go to the toilet. So then I came back 15, like 10, 15 minutes later, and I said to the bodyguards, oh, don't worry, I think it's fine. I think she's just having a conversation. And, and Pretty was like very kind of, you know, having a conversation and answering things back. And then the, and then the woman started to like, you know, start talking about race and something else. And I said, oh, I don't think we, I said, I don't think you, you need to lecture to women of colour of race. And then this dismissal of like, she's not a woman of colour, look at her. And she said, oh, don't worry, I'm not one of those, I'm from Notting Hill. And I was not to say anything, like, but it was this idea of the fact that I'm a lefty, so therefore I can say these racist things to this woman. And I remember, like, I saw the look on Pretty's face and she was like really, really kind of like heartbroken, but had to kind of keep it together. And I made a comment to like, you know, to kind of complain. But I think even in places where you think it's a nice kind of place to kind of sit, where you get that level of racism. So yeah, I think like, you know, with the amount of hate, like somebody like Owen 
Jones or all those kind yeah. of lefties would like imagine that because like the whole point is like the, the Labour Party would never give me a seat so if the Conservative Lib Dems even the Greens gave me a seat which I'm not saying any of these parties are ones that I want to stand for I think I think this idea of like how dare you as a black woman stand for anybody that's not it, I, honestly it would be horrendous and I think that's a, a massive a massive issue within our within our political system that like you know credible black, women of colour are not able to stand because they're scared for their lives so no in it in a shorter bar, in a, in a roundabout way, I don't want to be an MP. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too when you're seeing lots of like the current MPs are quite young ages. So Deanna Davison yeah. and William Rag all saying they're not going to stand for re-election. It's really then it's, it's a job where, yeah. yeah, it's really really hard, and I think people forget that these people are human. And I I always stand by something that I say, like you know, I never dehumanize anybody to the point where I can't find some kind of compassion for them. So I can find compassion for anybody, and I never idolize anybody to the point that you can't criticize them. So I think this level of and, and that's been my kind of success in terms of my activism is. Is that I can see goodness in everybody. Like, you know, it's there's there's always the ability to have a conversation with somebody and find some kind of common ground. So these MPs, I think people forget that they are human and social media has even made it a million times worse. So keep on affecting change from the outsiders. Yes. The final question, because we have run a time though I could talk for another 25 minutes and but my producer would kill me. What is the worst advice you've ever been given? Do you know what? I think the advice is, well, like, I always hate that thing when it was like, oh, if there's no seat at the table for you, bring your own seat. I'm like, no, 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 there should be seats at the table for women and kind of like make sure that you you are there. And I think women and other people that are around the table should be making seats for, um, for other people. But I think, well, the worst advice I've been given is this kind of to be a good quiet woman and kind of like you know live timidly and have some shame I think that's the whole thing is like have some shame like you know be embarrassed about your like you know about your experiences about FGM and all these things so that's I think that's the worst advice I've been given because had I not been so open about my experience of FGM and, and, and the experiences of women like me I don't think we'll be able to live in a world where I have an 11 year old niece who has no idea what the letters FGM stand for but it was something that when I was her age was like physically part of my life in such a massive and horrible way. So I think being quiet, be quiet and be nice is the worst advice I've been given. I hate when people tell me to be nice. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Nimco. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. 